forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in time to tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh yeah! And this is how a podcast starts. We're doing it. Thanks for being here. Um, our guest today is Nathaniel Halpern, who is the creator, writer, executive producer of Tales from the Loop, which is on Amazon right now. You all can watch it. Nathaniel, thank you for being here. Uh, great to be here. Uh, and with me, uh, back for more, is Jay oh, Holcomb. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to be back. It's a pleasure. Thanks uh, for I wanted want Jay to uh, ride shotgun on this one, um, because as much as I like the series, he knows Tales from the Loop, the paintings, the game. All the stuff. And we were talking about it on Twitter. And I thought it would be great to have you come in and ask some of the questions um, that my shallow knowledge does not cover. Yeah, no, when I heard about this, the show, um, Amazon sort of dropped it uh, uh, with a little fa- with little fanfare. Uh, it was sort of a, a, like a, a rock in the pond in, in the other part of my life. As, as Ben just mentioned, I, I do RPGs. And I'm actually right now wrapping up a Things from the Flood campaign, which oh. is the sequel to Tales from the Loop. Um, and so I've been sort of steeped in this world and was really excited about the show. Oh, cool. What does a campaign mean in that context? Uh, so a campaign is like, um, I mean, it's basically like a campaign. So you've got, it's like a set adventure. Um, this one is an interesting one. So we're like 13 episodes in, it'll be 13 or 14 episodes with this group of people. And the group that I joined, uh, last year did a, a Tales from the Loop campaign. Um, so they did like 13 episodes of these four kids. Uh, the game is set in Boulder city. We'll can talk about that a little bit. Um, and so they brought the same characters back like six years later and then added me into the mix. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. That's really cool. Um, I want to start off by sort of talking about the, the broad question about the show, which is, how did you get to make this show? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's so strange. It's so sweet. Um, You know, it's, I keep bringing up on this podcast and and my writing partners, uh, the the person who sort of put this in my ear that we're living in a golden age of tone right now. Uh And Uh so much of Tales from the Loop is about tone. Um, It feels impossible to pitch. So I'm curious to hear how did the show come together and why were you the guy to bring it to the screen? That's a big question. Um, uh, I would say, well, I mean, starting from square one, uh, I actually wasn't familiar with Simon's work um, until I met uh, Matt Reeves and his uh, producing partners. And they exposed me to Simon's paintings, which, you know, it started on Kickstarter to have these collections, the books, um, Tales from the Loop and Things from the Flood. And it was just one of those great moments of seeing the work. and responding to it in that he has such a original aesthetic that's rare to find in science fiction. Usually you can be like, oh, it's like that. And the other thing's like, there's just this wonderful quality to what he does. And more than that, I actually, I found them very emotional. I found them very poignant. Um, the loneliness and the melancholy that are, exist in those uh, paintings and within the, the books that he made. And so I then, uh, it sounds like it's just a good story to tell, but uh, a week later, I had the whole show in terms of the structure and the stories. And well, Matt Re- let's yeah. stop you right there because yeah. that's bonkers. Oh, 
it was just, yeah, it was just one of those, it was just a great moment because I've certainly worked on my share of things where you have to scratch in the dirt for a while to figure it out. But it, um, you know, at this point, now that it shows out, it's kind of, in hindsight, I'm articulating how it all worked, but it kind of was a nonverbal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's interesting. I mean, I'm curious to hear, like, what what aspects of the show came into focus for you first? Because it's an unusual structure. It's a thing that I know a lot of us have been talking about in meetings and, and with our writer friends about, like, there must be a way to do an anthology that's not an anthology. You right, know, right, that right. Has, it gives you everything. So I am curious about, you know, what were the things that were clear to you from the get-go? And then what were the things you really had to dig in on? Yeah, well, I guess it's interesting. It's, there's a few different things that feel like they might have a satellite existences that then coalesce into what it ended up being in that I was looking at the Simon's work and thinking, well, how do you maintain the quality of this? And there's a sense of wonder in his paintings and a sense of emotion. And how do you keep that alive? Because it's one thing to do that in a film, but in a, a television series, I find the familiarity can dilute the wonder. And so with each one of his paintings, there's a unique science fiction element in them. So every time you turn the page, there's the, the wonder is reset. You never see these science fiction elements coexisting. It's always this ordinary setting and this unique quality of science fiction. And that marriage keeps going through each painting. So that quickly for me is like, okay, a way to keep the wonder alive is to reset it with each hour that you never get to, I I keep calling it the, I get it moment where you can fully wrap your arms around it. So basically every hour you're going to be a little on your toes uh, and have that sense of wonder. Oh, here's this new science fiction concept. Not that I, you know, did anything terribly revolutionary in terms of a science fiction idea. It's just within the context and tone of the show, it's different. And then on top of that, it coming from a place of character, uh, there's always the great alchemy of you have an ordinary person and then this extraordinary thing happens to them and you're off to the races. And another issue with television is when too many extraordinary things happens to an ordinary person, they're no longer relatable. They have this convoluted backstory and I I, I can't really see myself in them anymore. And so wanting to keep the emotion alive and the wonder is like, well, that's, then dictated to a certain extent, having these different characters take center stage. So we never lost that, for lack of a better word, formula uh, of here's an ordinary person you can see yourself in, and then this extraordinary thing happens to them. And just having that with each hour. And then the balancing act of, as you said, it's not quite an anthology series. How do you still tell an overarching narrative um, while not being lost if you just happen to be watching one of them? Uh, and so that was just a, I just found it in the writing of it. Uh, and obviously we're centered, um, loosely around that one family. So that was a good way to anchor myself into the world. And then I guess your second part of your question was, um, uh, why, why was I the person to do it? Uh, (laughs) uh, and that was, uh, I met Simon and I think he, I think he had met with uh, a fair amount of people who pitched, um, you know, uh, ship battles and nefarious conspiracies. And what was wonderful is within five minutes of meeting each other, we described uh, our walks to school when we were children and just started to relate to each other on just very mundane life experiences. 
And I think we both saw, just saw eye to eye that that's what the show is. It's more about life uh, as we know it versus um, necessarily a escapist science fiction fantasy. That's one of the things I found so beautiful about the, the show, um, watching it, is just the sort of way that, like, they are all sci-fi stories. You're tackling time travel and roboticism and all of this stuff, but it isn't because it's sort of based around this, this concept of the loop having sort of infected this entire town with this sci-fi stuff. It's just part of their lives, and it just sort of factors in to the fabric of sort of their everyday life is just a life lived with, like, robots and weird things out in the forest that you just go, oh, that was a weird thing that you stepped into, and that's why this happened. And sorry, kid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we just have to move on from there. Uh, I thought, like, like, that's such an interesting tone for such a sci-fi kind of show. Yeah, and I think that, uh, thank you for saying that. Uh, there, I think uh, part of it was keeping in mind along the way of a desire to want to treat the ordinary like it's extraordinary and the extraordinary like it's ordinary. And that led to a lot of the decision-making and the, the way we shot it and the way the stories unfolded, which is really, you know, our ordinary lives are quite extraordinary when you think about it and focusing on that. I'm curious about the conversations that went on as you started to develop this and like, it, it feels like, the making the ordinary extraordinary is a strong point of view uh, and and the vice versa, but that can become hard to communicate, um, not just in script, but in all the meetings and outlines right. and things you have yeah. to do before that. Um, what did that look like for you? Well, I mean, what's wonderful and the unspoken leg up that I had was I had Simon's work. So there were, the, there were these incredibly captivating images that he had done, which perfectly strike that balance uh, and that surreal nature of you recognize yourself uh, in those paintings and also see this otherworldly quality. So sharing those was a huge benefit of this is what the world looks like and you get that feeling of it. And then I would tell them the stories that I, I wanted to tell within this context. And but yeah, I guess yeah. that's the other part of it is like you have these paintings as the jumping off point, but paintings are not stories. They may suggest stories, but right. as you say, like there are, you know, they, they heard, Matt, Matt heard dozens of pitches, different kinds of pitches on this thing. So there are so many different ways to go. So how do you start to communicate both your intent um, for the tone and the world and the theme, but also for these specific kinds of small and big stories you want to tell? Yeah, I think yeah, as, a, as a big fan of science fiction and just being very aware of what's out there in the landscape, there's no shortage of stories that are quite dystopian and cynical in nature. And it's well covered and it's been done very well. And I, when I looked at Simon's work, there was just a gentleness to it. Uh, and a more of a humanity, and that just being the approach, which I think is what made certain parties in the process of making this sit up, of like, oh, you're going to tell humanist emotional stories that hopefully can move the audience versus scare them and prey on their anxiety and fear. And I think they saw, oh, that's not being done right now. And so that might have been the appetizing draw to it of 
not only it's sticking out because it's based on paintings, but also just tonally, it was just going to go in a different direction than where a lot of the genre pieces are these days. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and and Jay, I'm curious to hear about the games. I, I you know I don't know a lot about that kind of thing. Um, and from what I understand, the the games came out like the paintings came first. Is that right? right. You guys can yeah. tell me that. Uh, yeah, and then the, the games came, came out of that. Yeah, and then the games came out uh, less than ten years ten years ago or so. Uh, first, the, uh, Tales from the Loop, and then Things from the Flood. Uh, and they, it's interesting the ways in which they sort of overlap the same sort of tone and world uh, as the show in that, you know, the, the, the games generally focus on children in this world, uh, and what it's like to be a kid in this town with this fantastical thing and, and these extraordinary things that are a part of your normal life. Uh, and a lot of the game is sort of, you encounter this weird thing. Uh, right now, the big thing we're dealing with uh, in Things from the Flood uh, takes place, like I said, about 10 years after Tales from the Loop, and the loop has sort of exploded and disappeared and left now sort of like broken remnants of the world. Um, so Tales from the Loop tends to be a little more optimistic and a little more sort of like 80s Spielberg to Things from the Flood, more 90s grunge, more of like we live in this broken world and like there are crabs with razor sharp limbs wandering around the town that have wandered through an interdimensional portal. Um, and my best, one of my best friends is actually a robot that his parents like recreated him as a robot. So he's always sort of struggling with how much is he a robot or how much is he a real boy. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting that just to see that like from the same uh, source material, these very different worlds. I mean, you know, the the games, it's an RPG, so you expect there's going to be a bit more sort of fighting and action. But uh, my very, very good friend uh, who GMs it has kept it relatively sort of like investigatory, and we're just five kids who used to be in a band who are now in their 20s, stuck in their town of Boulder City, Nevada, trying to figure out what to do with their lives while dealing with an invasion of mutant crabs. And like weird hover cars that fly out over the lake broadcasting signals inviting you to uh, a video game contest that no one ever seems to return from and it's just sort of like there are all these sort of pockets of of oddness around but it's funny i mean it sounds like and i guess it all comes from the source material but like there is that an overwhelming feeling that goes along with anything that comes out of and and Nathaniel, you touched on this about sort of the melancholy, but also the hopefulness of this. And it's a sort of child's or a young person's wonder. Um, was there, when, once it came time for you to start investigating characters as a way into this thing and giving us a way into this world that they already are very familiar with. I know that's something that a lot of execs get you know, stuck on is what's our way in and uh -huh. uh, whose first day is it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you use circumvent that, which I was so glad for. Uh, these characters live in the world, but I'd love to hear about finding that first character whose story you knew you wanted to tell and figuring out that story. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the difficult aspect, so much of it for me does come from an emotional place. 
and a tonal place, but there was a unique challenge in the pilot story of this show because it had the double task of, well, I guess every show has this, but introduce this world and tell a simple, quiet story about a character. And how do you have those feel like they elegantly come together and they're one story? And that was fairly difficult. Uh, to figure that out because it kept getting bigger than I wanted it to be. Uh, and as you said, the the way you phrased it of whose first day is it, it's just, it, it kept feeling like this isn't going to be the tone or the style of story I'm going to tell moving forward. So trying to really keep it from mo- moment go, that quality of storytelling that I wanted to do. So it's true. A lot of Simon's work, uh, especially the Tales from Loop is, and he said as much, is from a child's perspective of not really understanding the world around you. And so for me, that was an obvious way in it because very much the audience will be looking at these things like a child wondering, this world doesn't really make sense in the way an adult world doesn't necessarily make sense. You know, forget about the science fiction, just pretend this is a factory town or a steel town and what a child's imagination goes to when they don't understand uh, what's going on there. And so I treated it as such and just took it for granted. Uh, and that was kind of the way in. And it was really about not trying. I, I find a lot of television, um, there's a lot of unnecessarily unnecessary complications within the storytelling of it just, it's noise for the sake of noise. Uh, and here I was trying to, how do you really boil it down to something simple? Almost thinking of it's like a it's like a myth that it, you could tell around a ca- campfire and like, have I almost heard this story before? Wanting to have that quality of such simplicity that it's timeless versus we have the A, B and C story. And, and you realize half the scenes kind of were just there of people talking. So it was, it was really that pursuit early on of how simplistic could I get and really get under the skin of the character. It's, yeah, Jay, go ahead. I was gonna. I was gonna prompt you anyway. I had a, uh, the the question, and I think you you do all that just beautifully. And the, the big question that sort of struck me in it, uh, or one of the things that struck me about it, is how little exposition there is. Uh, and without there being a lot of exposition, there are some very complicated. There are some complicated sort of science fiction concepts at play. There is a lot uh, over the course of the full series, a lot of timey-wimey, but you don't know exactly when this is happening sort of things uh, and how this relates to other things. And I'm really curious, like, you know, having all of us having gone through exec notes and various people's notes and various questions, like, how are you able to keep it so simple and without having to explicate, okay, so the loop does X, which makes Y possible, and having to have, like, we never have any of those scenes. The closest the closest we come is in the pilot, uh, yeah. when Rebecca Hall's character explains to herself, spoiler alert, that this is, the, this is what powers the loop. But we never actually learn what they do there. Well, I would, I, I would also argue that Jonathan Price's uh, monologue at the beginning, uh, tells us a little bit of what they're doing. But I would say, yeah, I I think I'd be in a lot more trouble if the characters were asking those questions. And I, my hope was in the storytelling that we just take our cues from the characters 
And if they're not asking the questions or if they accept an explanation, uh, for instance, in episode six, uh, when character Gaddis, you know, transports to the other, they have a, a dinner table kind of powwow about it. And it's enough to suffice for them uh, what happened and they move on. And I think uh, that was just the approach to it in that I, I've written those scenes in previous shows and in films and sometimes they're necessary, but sometimes I think, well, it might check a box, but is it interesting? Uh, we've all seen characters go, what the hell's going on here? And let's just get past it and get to what's important and emotional uh, that's going on. And so that also is supported by the somewhat subdued tone of the show that it's not selling uh, a hyper mystery uh, and it's not hinging on a question. And that was why it was important for me to go beneath ground in the first episode to just get it out of the way. So uh, an audience wouldn't be thinking about that. It's like, no, 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 here it is. I pulled back the curtain. Uh, here are the toys. Now let's focus on these people that live here. And did you get any pushback from any execs? Like, was there any, anyone like, asking like, can you, can we explain this? Like, or did, you know, did they just say run with it uh, and, and tell the story? I'm thinking back. I mean, uh, this is, this is thinking back at quite a bit now. Uh, I think it was just, uh, they inherently got the, there's always questions that would pop up, but it was never, uh, the story wasn't hinging on a mystery. They knew it wasn't a mystery series. So I guess it just kept going back to everything above ground is a product of an experiment in the loop. And that's the answer always. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you it see seems like you, you communicated yeah. that so clearly from the start. They knew the kind of show that you wanted to make and were on board with that. And so didn't, you didn't have to field these kinds of yeah, and I logic think questions. They're obviously, and it's a testament uh, to Amazon and Fox, I, I certainly, uh, I, am not accused of overwriting, uh, in terms of dialogue. I'm a big fan of telling the story visually and the subtlety of nonverbal communication. And I, you know, there were certainly concerns along the way of, is this going to land or make sense, um, without a line there. And I just promised them and they were very, um, trusting. I, I was on set for every moment and making sure we're feeling we're seeing in the eyes what is meant to be communicated rather than needing an ADR line later or, or whatnot of just, no, this is a story told visually and it does require a certain degree of sensitivity from the viewer. Uh, it's not something you can scroll on your phone while you're just watching with your ear. Uh, but I think they, they understood from the get-go that was just the nature of the storytelling. That's, let me, I just want to ask sort of a, a back, a writing background question. And then I want to dig into some specific episode questions, Jay, yeah. which I know I'm sure you have, and I know I have. Um, but as far as the writing background thing, it bears um, bringing up that you wrote all the episodes of Tales from the Loop. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, if ever there was an auteur show, <laughs> you know, this is your voice uh, mm -hmm. coming through. Um clearly in conjunction with the artwork uh, and I'm sure with your directors and other collaborators, but this oh, is yeah. definitely your vision. Um, I'm curious about the experiences you had, like you have a, a pretty great resume of like high quality shows from really smart showrunners and creators, things like The Killing and Manhattan, uh, Outcast, Legion. 
what kind of rooms had you been in before? Were you on a show that suggested to you that there's a way to do this without a room? Um, or what made this show specific to writing without a room? Yeah, you know, I, I, I certainly was in my share of writers' rooms um, for years, and they were invaluable in terms of, uh, I always say, you just see how other people's minds work. And you think, oh, I never would have thought of it that way. And it was just a great way to kind of uh, learn my craft and uh, be in those rooms. And then I got to Legion, where in season two, um, well, A, first in season one, it's a show, if you, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's, um, it's a difficult show to talk about just in terms of plot. Uh, there's a lot of just intuitive nature to the writing of it. And then season two of Legion, Noah and Holly and I, uh, we were the only ones writing. And so that was my first experience without a room. Um, and we did the whole season that way. And it was just very intuitive, uh, the writing of that. And so that was my first taste of it. And then when I got to this show, I realized how much of it was going to hinge on these quiet moments that, because when writers get together, if you're sitting around a table, the common language really is plot. That that's the way you can get a dialogue going and to explain why it's important, why this icicle is dripping is uh, I just, I, I would see how that would just kind of fall apart in a room, especially I also, I, I did an outline um, because once again, I feel like outlines plots read very well in an outline. And this, I don't think an outline would have done these stories justice uh, in that way. So there was just a great deal of trust and I would tell the stories and I would walk um, them through what it was going to be. But here I just knew it would just have to be felt moment to moment in the script writing process. Uh, so it was no, it wasn't generally an aversion to writer's rooms. It was just this project in particular, I, I felt like it's, I just know it's not going to be plot heavy. And, uh, and that's why I did it the way I did it. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, for you to say, and, and I'm surprised this hasn't come up on the podcast much in the past, that like the best thing that a writer's room can do is generate plot, right? Like that's that's <laughs> yeah. why you want those brains. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I'm wondering uh, also about your sort of choice of directors and working with the directors, because looking at the list, it's like there are some incredible names on there, not, not just Jodie Foster, but Ty West, uh, I, as a, a fan of Primer, I love the brief appearance of Shane Carruth. Thank right you for bringing end. that up. Yes, um, and I, I'm just wondering, also with sort of the tone of the work you're doing, and like, with like these directors aren't necessarily also genre directors. And was that a, a choice, uh, or or did it just sort of turn out that way? Uh, I just, you know, I'm a big cinephile, and uh, trying to bring my definition of cinematic uh, to, to the medium. And so I really sought out some of these directors I'd worked with prior on, uh, for instance, Legion. So Charlie McDowell, Tim Melance, Andrew Stanton, uh, and other directors I sought out just because I was a big admirer of their work. So Young Kim, who did episode two. I love her film, Treeless Mountain. Um, and I think what drew the directors to it was, you know, you'd brought up earlier anthology, uh, while this is not an anthology in a traditional sense, the directors, 
I feel had felt they had an opportunity. They could craft a whole film. It's, I think the an issue in television, when you have episodic directing, it's just this, then cliffhanger, then this, then cliffhanger. And you can be a bit anonymous uh, in the mix there. And here I made it very clear, come and really craft a visual language of a film and you, you're going to own this. And for me, when I, when I watch all the episodes, it's so clear who directed them to me. I can see their personality in each one of them. And I was there, I feel, as just making sure it all felt of a, a piece. Uh, and so, yeah, was that the question? <laughs> About... <laughs> That's yep. There, yeah, that that's the question. Yeah, that's it's such a, a great roster. Um, going back to the writing a little bit, and just thinking of it, just trying to get into where your brain was at uh, again. The the sort of time nature of it is so complicated. Like the reveals uh, uh, in the back half that really inform the first half. I'm thinking particularly of enemies is like a real sort of linchpin episode for a character who's we've seen through this entire series and have known nothing about. And then that reveal is, is so sort of incredible and then comes back again right at the end. Right. Uh, like how did, did all that come organically? Did all of that in that sort of moment where you have the whole series, did you have all of that? Yes. <laughs> um, I did not. Well, yeah, it, no, it, it did all just come very quickly. Uh, it doesn't always happen that way, but it, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it, it's, it's difficult because I spent so much time making it and now to kind of reverse engineer it back into just words. <laughs> um, it, it's difficult to uh, articulate the process, but it did feel like, I mean, there was certainly some reverse engineering where you discovered, because I had the, it was nice that I had all the scripts written before I went into production. So there certainly is, without being able to think of anything in particular, off the top of my head, but a discovery in a later script where you go, oh, that revealed something to me about this character. So now I'll, I'll go tweak something much earlier. Um, and it's all very subtle stuff, but um, in that way, they were informing each other as it all got written. Yeah, and that, that gives you a richness of the world. And, and yeah, that's, that's really neat. And it's also, um, yeah. the, the other thing that's uh, unusual, I think, um, is that so often the characters, they're alone. It's very rare to see scenes of just one character. And I really like private behavior in that, you know, they're not performing for anyone. And so it's, it's just inherently honest, whatever they're doing. And so I, I, I point to a, a lot, like one of my favorite moments is in episode five, when the character of Ed sees the note that his wife and daughter are staying, their brother, and he, he lifts the chair over his head. And then he puts it down without slamming it down. It's like, that's not for anybody. And he, it's just, it says a lot about him and how helpless uh, he feels in that moment. So writing, so even on episode seven, where you have that character on the island uh, for so long by themselves, that's the stuff I get really excited about. It sounds like, you know, this this came to you so fully formed and and so much of the process of getting it made seems pretty painless. In the writing, well, here's my question. <laughs> in in the writing, what were the challenges? I think it was uh, finding the balance because at the end of the day, it is a science fiction show. And 
it's very seductive to fall into the genre. And I think it was about just pulling back on the reins whenever it felt like the genre was starting to hog the attention away, away from the characters. Because so often I find in a science fiction, sometimes the characters are just there to service the science fiction idea versus the other way around. And so I think that was the hardest part of, as you, as you were bringing up earlier, some of like what you would, might say is the more complicated uh, science fiction ideas of time travel is just how do you just simplify at every turn and not try and show off the complication and just make it inherently felt and understood versus turning it into some kind of puzzle to be fixed uh, or, or solved, I mean. And so in hindsight, I feel like some of that time stuff does seem complicated, but the, the hope in writing it was, oh, this will just feel elegant and you'll just accept it and you, you'll just keep feeling rather than stopping to think. Well, and because so much of it is about the feelings and the, the feelings of the characters, was that, is that something that's easy for you to access as a writer? Do you have to, what is that digging deep process like for you? Uh, I think inherently that's just where I come from, that it just, it begins and ends with emotion. I, I think uh, oftentimes it'll get a great deal of lip service and then you, you get, you get the note, we'll cut this scene. It's not moving the plot along. <laughs> and, uh, so I think I just was very protective along the way. And it was just so much in the DNA of the storytelling that this was going to be stories built on emotional character moments rather than trying to just squeeze those in. I think we probably have all experienced this. And I certainly was those coming up in writer's rooms where there'd be these great little quiet moments in these scripts and you would shoot them and they would never make screen because they're like, why do we need this? And so that having happened to me so many times, uh, I finally tried to stack the deck in the other direction and make sure those moments survived. Yeah, I love that now it's like, maybe these sci-fi moments are the ones that go away. Yeah, and we're yeah. left with just the character. <laughs> um, do you want to get in on some of the specific episode stuff? Did, uh, Jay, did you have like specific story things or plot things or character things you want to talk about? And there was, there was just so much of it that was so like so rich and like I felt so sort of deeply like the in terms of writing uh, and we sort of talked about this but still just like so much of it is about kids and about the feelings uh, of uh, not just sort of adolescence but pre adolescence and living in that world and just being able to, I'm, how were you able to access like so much of that uh, and like really dig into you know. Um, I feel like the, uh, I forget the, the title of it, but the body switching episode. Oh, Transpose, is, yeah. Transpose is so heartrending and does sort of like, is in, in some ways, obviously, because of the, the show, the, the, the heart of a lot of the episodes happens in Transpose. Um, if there is any sort of mystery to the show, it's there. And just like, how are we able to just access both of those kids so clearly? Yeah, I would say, whether this is true or not, uh, I would say that I find oftentimes kids, I mean, those are teenagers, but there's even younger characters in the show. I find often on screen is an idealized version of, of the, that age, or sadly, I think at this point, it's almost referential to other on-screen depictions. And so for me, it was a, a little bit about 
swiping that aside, I, I would say like a reference, if we were, I was to reference something like a film like The Ice Storm, I always felt was very honest. I recognize, and I, I was roughly that age when that film came out. And I was like, that feels real. And I think oftentimes when it comes to kids on screen, uh, the loneliness gets either car- becomes a cartoon or completely forgotten. And it's just hijinks and it's fun all the time. And here, I, I think it really was just about a simple process of remembering what did that feel like? And trying to use that as a barometer of does this feel real? And that that applied to all the characters of not trying to, I think there's, you could say perhaps it's probably an oversimplification, but there's perhaps two types of audiences, those who want to see how they wish it was and those who like to recognize us and say, oh, that's how it is. And I certainly fall in that camp and just use that throughout of does this feel emotionally honest? And, and went in that direction. Yeah, it's so honest. And like, and also the, the great performances you got out of a, a stellar cast. I was thinking, I just finished re-watching the last few seasons of Veep, okay. uh, and then to come to Dan Bakendahl's, uh performance as Ed, uh, after the, the, the vile human being he plays on Veep. To, like, I empathize with him so deeply, and that moment you talk about with him raising the chair is just, it's just stunning and like, it's so different. And like, I don't, you don't see that. Uh, you don't see that sort of self-awareness in a character in that, in that private moment, which is, was great. Uh, yeah. And Dan, I mean, he's fantastic. I want to work with him for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> and I think, and, that, and, that, and that, that speaks to, you know, we're talking about writing, but none of this works without those actors who are so throughout the cast who are so compelling in their quiet behavior that yeah. it's not, these aren't extroverted parts. And so it was just critical that you could see what they were thinking at all times and have that empathy. And that's very hard to do. And, yeah. and, Dan, and Dan has that in spades, uh, uh, especially in, the, in that character of Ed. And you just, you never question, you know what he's thinking at every moment even though he's rarely voicing what he's actually thinking. So I think that it just speaks to his talent. Cool. I have one other sort of like processy question. I'm, I'm curious, like what was the, the balance point between sort of practical effects and CGI? Because the, the effects are just seamless and oh, great. really great. And the way people interact with them is great. And I'm like, I, for me as, as a like sci-fi geek and sci-fi film geeks always sort of looking like, where, which part of this is real and which part of this is just completely fake? Well, you've just made my day. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that was really the hope. I always feel that a mixture of practical and CG is the way to go in terms of your brain doesn't quite know how to file it away uh, and that you know something's real there. So, for instance, so it was, it was a great uh, combination. Uh, there's company Legacy Effects who were outstanding. And then they made the practical. So they did like George's uh, bionic arm, the Jacob robot. Those were real some of the time. And then I had this other company who were wonderful rodeo who would do CG takeovers. So when the Jacob robot is walking, it's a CG takeover, but many of the shots when it's just there or like when Cole hugs it for, 
example, it's just real and it's puppeteered. So its eyes are puppeteered and so are its ears. And it's, uh, it was wonderful to have in terms of having a sense of reality uh, on set, especially for the children. I mean, it was a great moment because I, I had to justify why we were building that early on. Um, beside the point that we were going to save some money in terms of the CG shots we wouldn't have to do. But in that first episode where young Cole's throwing uh, stones at it, we, we did a take. And then in between takes, uh, the young actor, he, he walked up and apologized to the robot because he felt so bad for throwing rocks at it. And I, I just thought to myself in that moment, I was like, this is why we built it because it's going to provide a sense of a reality and emotion in these scenes that we weren't just going to get if there was a green box there. Uh, but on the same, uh, on the flip side of that coin, Rodeo did this amazing job. So for instance, the cooling towers that are always in the distance, uh, they did a wonderful job with those and all sorts of elements that you might not think even was an effect. And it was just so seamless and understated and the rule of thumb with all of those elements, uh, my mantra that I would just tell everyone is less is too much. And don't, it's so tempting to show off with these things, but the more you take these elements for granted, the more real they'll feel. Yeah, it all felt so very real. And like, that was, that's one of the things that sort of struck me. Again, also, cause it's, it's, the elements are so compacted. It's not an entire city, except for that one, long distance shot right. it's it's it is just a, a hover car or a robot or or an arm or whatever well, that's, it is. and that's um and that's also when you go back to simon's work you see that you don't really see those science fiction elements coexisting it's always yeah. one of them in a rural ordinary landscape so that was another i won't say tricky thing but just something to keep in mind when i was making the show of they had to be discreet and where they were otherwise it would start to get a little too crowded yeah that makes a lot of sense and and again it's a thing that speaks to the world that you've created here right like it it gives depth to the world it gives reality to the world um we need to just about wrap up but can you tell us um what's next did you was this designed to have multiple seasons yeah i was um I mean, it's still too early for me to know, sure. um, but it, it certainly has an engine to, to be uh, a series in that the loop itself generates stories. And uh, that's something that's tricky. I'm sure you guys find it as well. There's a lot of, there's a lot of shows that feel like film premises that yeah. then you, they go, uh-oh, what's episode three? And so I, I was certainly trying to be uh, careful there. And so I designed that structure so that you could, this could go on for any length of time. Um, and so that's the hope at least. Well, that's great. No, no news yet. Um, no. what, what are you working on these days? What's happening? Are you even working right now under these circumstances? Uh, not, not to the, the level that I was just recently making the show and delivering that. Uh, so I'm still just only uh, a few months since delivering the last episode on this. Uh, I'm certainly coming up with ideas and jotting down notes for other ideas and other kind of tones that I'd like to explore uh, in, in potential different series, but nothing to report really. Well, that's, that's, that's more than enough considering yeah. where we all are. I mean, Jay, we were talking before we started rolling, you're in a room right now in a virtual yeah. room 
And listen, I had three Zoom phone calls today and I'm exhausted. Like, uh, I don't yeah. know how you can be in the room for more than a couple of hours. How's yeah, how, it many, how many hours does that, uh, do you do on this? We do less than a full day-ish. We do about 10.30 to 3.30 and we take breaks is also the like sort of real key to making, making the day of like, because yeah, it's the same thing. It is, it's great because I think if in the sort of compacted hours, we get in some ways a lot more done uh, in part because my showrunners uh, were not in production. They're not sort of being quite pulled in quite as many different directions, so they can focus and be much more involved so we can get answers on questions quicker and just sort of move together quicker. But it is also the, like, complicated dance of, like, it's sort of one person talking at a time or eight people talking at the same time, and there's sort of no quite in-between. Uh, so it's not exactly like being in a room, but it's but what also- we have. Yeah, it's, it, what I struggle with, uh, uh, and here we are doing it right now on this, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it really denies you a lot of the nonverbal cues. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. that are tricky. So much uh, more. Yes. And that's, I feel, part of the Zoom burnout is having to focus so much more uh, for yourself on, like, how am I communicating? And then, yeah, what am I receiving back from other people? Was that a good joke? I don't know. I can't tell. Everyone's on mute, so I didn't hear anyone laugh. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh, Well, listen, you're both doing good work. (laughs) Uh, Tales from the Loop is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Folks should check it out. Um, Jay, you've got Supergirl going on. We have uh, two more episodes to air for this season, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, I believe. And then we're on to season six in the fall. Cool. Um, we'll wrap up, as we always do, by asking you both what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What movies, books? Honestly, we open this to anything that will take us uh, our minds off of our terrible current <laughs> situation. Uh, Jay, we'll start with you, and then we'll give Nathaniel the last word. Well, there was the show Tales from the Loop, but then I finished <laughs> it, so I don't know what I'm going to watch now. Uh, I've been splitting my time. I'm actually trying to take advantage of the, the sort of downtiminess. Uh, so right now I'm in the midst of uh, Evil on CBS, catching up on that, uh, which I'm enjoying quite a lot, and What like We Do in Shadows, oh, uh, which right. I'm literally living for, and I'm amazed every week. Just, just, It's just stunning. So good. Nathaniel, what are you watching? You know, whenever I get asked this question, I draw a complete blank. Um, I I just watched on Netflix the documentary series Cheer. Mm-hmm. It's uh, really fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was very compelling and just very emotional uh, yeah. with the characters. I say characters, they're real people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they are characters also. <laughs> yeah, and I've also, um, I just started watching My Brilliant Friend. Yeah, uh, I, I I was late to the game on that one, and so I started the season one. I've been enjoying that. Uh, That's yeah, another one I'll say where like the nonverbal acting going mm-hmm. on in that show is so affecting. Yeah, and uh, and outside of that, it's it is odd. It's a, we're living in a time where the days kind of evaporate, so I'm not sure I'm watching as much as I used to. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I agree. Well, I thank you both for taking the time to chat today. Uh, and I look forward to what you all are doing next. Great. It's so nice meeting both of you. Nice meeting you. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. 
For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.